Along the west coast of Scotland lies a chain of island communities where fishing and farming have been a way of life for thousands of years. From the islands of Lewis and Harris in the northern Outer Hebrides to Jura and Isla in the Inner Hebrides further south, this network of over 136 islands has a rich and vibrant history. Stone Age structures tell us that settlers inhabited these islands thousands of years ago as the climate became mild enough to sustain ancient peoples. In the centuries that followed, Celts, Picts, Vikings, clansmen and British armies fought to control the islands, leaving a legacy of languages, structures and settlements. By the late 18th century, thousands of inhabitants had made these islands their home. But the turbulent times were not over. The Highland clearances, the collapse of the Scottish kelp market, and a devastating potato famine led to economic migration. People fled to Australia, Canada and the US seeking new opportunities. Populations on the islands dwindled from thousands to hundreds, and some islands were abandoned altogether. Yet those who stayed persisted in finding inventive ways to sustain their inhabitants. Crofting or small-scale food production remains a way of life for many in the Hebrides. Of course, the arrival of new transport and power connections over the past few decades has opened up new opportunities for residents who are no longer forced into burning peat for heat or growing and catching their own food. But in securing the future of these islands through providing reliable electricity, teams from Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks are looking to the past to ensure that the rich history is not lost. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, we've partnered with consultant WSP to head over to the west of Scotland to find out how the provision of electricity also means learning more about the heritage of these unique and beautiful islands. And we find out about some unique projects that will preserve that heritage for future generations. Generations that, unlike their ancestors, will be able to take the supply of electricity for granted. We serve 59 Scottish islands, connecting some of the UK's most remote communities to vital electricity supplies to provide heating, lighting and electricity for cooking and, and so forth. This is Katie Urquhart from Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks Distribution. As Subsea Project's environmental manager, Katie has had to make sure that all of the environmental consents are in place for the 450 kilometres of cables linking the Scottish islands to the electricity system. This includes the Isle of Col. Col is one of the smaller islands of the Inner Hebrides at just 13 miles long and 4 miles wide and is served by a single 11 kV subsea electricity cable. There is no uh, gas mains on the Isle of Col. So, you know, one of the things that we wanted to make sure is that the islanders themselves had availability to electricity. When you look at the demographics of the people that live on Col and uh, some of the surrounding islands like uh, Tyree, Iona and Mull, there are probably only about 153 properties and the uh, population themselves, about a third of that population are over the age of 65. This is something that SSEN is very aware of in terms of the vulnerability of its customers to any disruption in supply 
and White has kept a very close eye on the conditions of the cables. Cole's first connection was put in place in 1987, running from the neighbouring island of Mull under the sea to the Bay of Sorisdale on Cole. But despite the idyllic surroundings, this passage is not easy. The cable sits on a rocky seabed, in very deep water affected by strong currents, and these conditions led to multiple faults developing in the cable, which were picked up by SSEN's inspection regime. After just 14 years, it had to be replaced. This was in 2001. This new cable was monitored closely over the next 20 years, using remotely operated undersea inspection tools. And in November 2018, the team realised that the cable had been damaged once again. We did find that there was areas on the outer, outer side of the cable that had been exposed to wear and tear, and that it, it's kind of reached a point where do you know what, we need to change it out just now before it gets to the point where it may fault. And if it should fault, that means that, you know, there might be a disruption in the energy to these islands. And the last thing we want is for any of our consumers to be without power. We pride ourselves on powering our communities. SSEN also prides itself on protecting the environment and the heritage of the places where its teams work. Katie described the ways in which the company would protect and monitor basking sharks, mink whales, barnacle geese and other bird species as part of the project. Archaeology and the history of the location and the place where we're working is of the utmost importance. And there is a lot of evidence documented in the local archives. Now, on the Isle of Cole, there is a lot of history. There is a lot of architecture and archaeology that remains still exist and uh, we're very very fortunate that a lot of this information or most of this information has been bookmarked if you like. Meaning that historic features have been recorded into public archives but there is only so much that we can learn from physical archaeology. What is missing is perhaps looking at the history of the events that took place, you know, and one way that we can record this is to look at oral history. So, you know, one thing that we want to do is engage with the customers to help leave a, a lasting legacy. A lot of utilities, civil engineering and construction companies, you know, they might simply come in, parachute into a community, build their project and leave again. But in addition to delivering generation security and the power supply to the island, we wanted to create a programme that will not only benefit the community for generations to come, but that will unite current generations in celebrating their history and proud island traditions. We wanted to record and document these voices um, in perpetuity for people to, to draw and expand on in the future. This is archaeologist Kevin Mooney, who is Principal Heritage Consultant for WSP. WSP is conducting archaeological and environmental assessments for SSEN on a range of power projects around these island communities, including Cole and Mole. He explains what life is like today in these better connected but still remote islands. The, the northern portion of Cole is a, an emotive landscape uh, with very few inhabitants in it and dispersed, isolated uh, communities. The cable landfall, or the shore end site, was in the Bay of Sorisdale in the north end of Col, and there is 
a small crofting community which is situated around the bay. Finding out more about this is more critical than ever before as the crofting way of life becomes less common. It's a way of life that's just dying out. Crofting is a, it's a traditional social system in Scotland um, which is it's kind of defined by small scale food production and it's it's characterised by its common working in, in community townships surrounded by individual crofts. The actual crofting life, lifestyle survives uh, around arable and, and vegetable production. Generally it's poorer quality hill ground. It's used for kind of common grazing for cattle and sheep. Much of the archaeological remains that the team discovered as part of the cable replacement project speak to the sustainable and unique way of life in this part of the world. So we know that um, in prehistory, uh, the inhabitants of Col six, seven thousand years ago were harvesting and processing this kind of readily available natural resources. Now, if we go later, uh, in our chronological time frame, the assessment also highlighted that there'd been very little previous development in the area, which increases the survival rate for archaeology. The presence of exposed bedrock reduced the survival rate for subsurface archaeological remains, which are what we would describe as prehistoric and, and other artefacts. But Sorisdale Bay itself, the, the kind of rich crofting tradition was very, very clear. Some of these archaeological remains tell us a lot about the way of life. Most of the remains relate to byers, small kelp, kilns. We've got boat nosts. Small stone covers for boats sitting in the sand dunes above the bay providing temporary shelter or storage. We identified on the survey, which were absent from the, the historic environment record, a number of small cairns uh, located on kind of peaks a, a, across the, the assessment area. And what we believe these small cairns, cairn is a, a small kind of wayfaring pile of stones grassed over, but they potentially allowed the inhabitants of the area and the crofting community to, to navigate their way either by land throughout the, the landscape uh, and find their way to a, a, a rich fishing area or a, an area of peat or turf cutting or it could have allowed people from uh, fishing boats uh, along the bay to navigate along the coastline uh, and work out and triangulate where exactly they were. They didn't have the, the GPS that we have now in our phones so it would have been difficult traversing the landscape back in the, the kind of early, early 1800s, 1900s. Kevin is clearly impressed with the ingenuity of Cole's ancestors. We also encountered uh, what's been described as a fish trap. Um, now, it's unclear whether this is prehistoric or it could have been prehistoric and utilised all the way up to the medieval period beyond. Uh, there's nothing datable at, at this stage for the, the fish trap, but... The fish trap appears to be a, a natural inlet or harbour which has been stoned over so when the tide came in it overran this kind of uh, small wall of stones and when it receded the water retained behind the, the, the small uh, wall of stones and allowed uh, resources to be, to be gathered before the tide receded again. 
and this is quite interesting because there's if this could potentially show you know real exploitation of the the natural resources from prehistory all the way through to our kind of current day and it's this longevity that SSEN and WSP are hoping to recreate in the Oral History Project, which will form an audio library of local experience. Like everyone else, the team has been delayed by the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the recordings will only begin once it's safe to do so. But this experience too will be captured. We are mindful that we're now living in a completely different time to where we were a couple of years ago with the effects of um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And that in itself is, is a great thing to capture of how that's affected the way of life. Because where you would have had a lot of tourism, um, that's kind of halted that process. And it'd be interesting to understand from the residents of the, the communities how are they coping with a change in the world as it is? Another island community that has experienced major change during the COVID-19 pandemic and over the centuries before it is the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides. In fact, it is the most northern of all of the Western Isles and boasts a population of around 18,500 people. So traditionally, the Isle of Lewis was supplied by a diesel power station at Battery Point, which was originally opened in the 1950s. Uh, and that is what supplied the electricity for the island up until 1991. Simon Hall is a Consents and Environment Manager for Scottish Southern Electricity Network's transmission team. He explains that in 1991, just over 30 years ago, a mainland electricity link was established which ran from the town of Fort Augustus, which sits at the south end of Scotland's famous Loch Ness, over to Broadford, a village on the Isle of Skye. And then from Broadford to Ardmore, uh, where we installed two 33 kilovolt subsea cables. They then are run from Harris, a neighbouring island to the north of Skye, uh, via a 132 kilovolt overhead line up to Stornoway and then it is transformed down to a distribution network uh, level and sent out across the islands to power people's homes and businesses. The system is maintained vigilantly. As part of our rigorous asset maintenance and, and operations we regularly maintain uh, our assets. We regularly undertake maintenance uh, and updating of our assets uh, as they come to their end of life. So there are three sort of main substations uh, on the islands and the transformers at two of those, at Harris and Ardmore, were replaced about five years ago as they'd come to the end of their life. Uh, Stornoway managed to carry on for another couple of years uh, and that was then required to be replaced um, in 2018-2019 as part of the project that we are talking about today. Stornoway needs a new substation to maintain supplies to what is the biggest community in the Western Isles. The original substation has been in operation for 30 years. It's an outdoor transformer, so it is uh, exposed to, to all the lovely weather and elements that the, the Western Isles can bring, which obviously does uh, affect the, the lifespan of, of some of the assets. But yes, it's done very well. 
Replacement isn't as simple as removing the old substation and installing the new one. This would leave the island without power, so SSEN had to be created with its plans for replacement. In simple terms, it had to build a new one next door to the existing substation and only when it was completely finished, switch all of the cable connections over to the new unit. But this created another challenge for the team. An unavoidable challenge. A challenge that has been gathering for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The presence of peat deposits. The Western Isles have an awful lot of very good quality in ancient peatland habitat. Restoration and protection of peatland is a priority for the Scottish government as it seeks to reduce its carbon footprint. Peatland is a, a great source of carbon sink and uh, therefore we have an ongoing commitment to limit the amount of disturbance that we have to peatlands when we're, when we're developing projects. So. The first thing was, was to identify where we were going to put the, the, the new part of the substation. And then secondly, we then had to look at how to minimise the amount of peat that we, we actually disturbed even further. Although the site of the existing substation was already fixed, the team were able to orientate the new substation location in a way that minimised the amount of peat that was to be disturbed and made sure that the deepest layers were not affected. So what we did was we managed to reduce the amount of peat that we were likely to disturb from about 10,000 cubic metres down to 4,000 cubic metres. And this was achieved primarily by looking at the, the size and orientation of the compound that would be required to be built for the contractors. At the same time, Simon knew that the area had a lot to offer in terms of historic artefacts. Given the uh, the Western Isles' deep history and, and rich cultural heritage assets, it was felt that uh, we needed to make sure that we had an archaeologist on site when we started to uh, remove uh, earth and peat, just in case we, we discovered anything that was previously unknown. And that's how a lot of archaeological finds are made. What they needed was Kevin Mooney. Interestingly, to the south of the site, um, there was archaeological remains encountered underneath peat. Uh, there was a prehistoric, what we call a prehistoric funerary monument. There was a stone circle which was found during peat cutting in the, the kind of early uh, 1900s, which was completely obscured by around two metres of peat. Um, so the potential existed for further archaeological remains uh, across the site um, and we introduced a phased approach of archaeological monitoring during the, the construction of the substation. So then we need to ask the question of what we can do with the peat and we know um, from archaeological record and, and from local landowners and history that uh, peatlands uh, all across Scotland and, and Britain have been subject to peat cutting over, over many centuries where the piece is, is cut out and dried for use as fuel to, to heat people's homes. There are several of these areas uh, and they are sort of prime candidates, if you like, for peat restoration schemes where we can actually help uh, to restore the original peatlands. And working with SEPA, the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, we identified, actually very luckily in our case, uh, several peat cut areas uh, just to the south of our site, probably within about half a mile, that were suitable for 
the placement of the peat that we were going to excavate into these previous cut holes. We could then block up any site drains that were there, which would then help uh, rain and, and moisture to stay in there and help the peat to, to remain wet and to regenerate itself. Now, interestingly enough, on consultation with the, the Western Isles Council archaeologist, a chap called Kevin Murphy, we discussed options to enhance and benefit the historic environment record. And, and during discussions with Kevin, uh, we identified that there had been very little radiocarbon dating done of peat deposits across the Isle of Lewis. And that's where we agreed to fund a paleo-environmental survey, which involved drilling uh, a core down uh, through the peat uh, to ascertain the age of the, uh, the peat at various depths. Well, interestingly, during assessment of the peat column, we recovered Mesolithic, Bronze Age and Medieval dates along the column. So from the very, very early dates right to current period, we had a fully preserved stratigraphic sequence um, or what we would call an environmental baseline on Lewis. And the subsequent analysis of, of the kind of peak deposition rates have indicated that there's been an unusually low, below average deposition rate of around one millimetre per year, which suggests that this particular area at Stornoway on Lewis must have been subject to periods of very slow or even no sedimentation, so hi hiatuses we would call them. And the full column of peat, as I said previously, uh, it, it pr produced Mesolithic through to medieval dates. And it suggests that most of the Holocene record was preserved in situ in this particular area, giving a, a perfect perfect snapshot of the environment on the Western Isles. A snapshot that will be used by the local University of the Highlands and Islands. Ultimately, the results of the work that we have done will be deposited in historic environment record, allowing for advancement and further research, utilising the results of what we've found in Stornoway to incorporate further detail into what we would describe as future research agenda. So it allows people in, in local universities like uh, Lewes Castle College um, at the UHI to pick up and, and use for PhD thesis. Certainly the Stornoway project has been, is one of our good case studies internally in terms of minimising disturbance on, to peatlands and also looking at peat restoration projects uh, and how we've worked with SEPA. And it all ties in with our broader sustainability commitments uh, regarding biodiversity. And those, the company has effectively committed to ensuring that there is a no net loss of biodiversity value uh, on all its projects from 2020. Uh, and we're trying to achieve a biodiversity net gain on all of our projects that are consented from 2025. Biodiversity net gain is expected to enter English law in the near future, with requirements contained in the Environment Bill legislation that's sitting in the House of Commons. Other parts of the UK are expected to follow. In acting now, SSEN is ahead of the game, going beyond future potential legal requirements and setting a sustainable example for their own projects and those of other developers. 
So even though this project predated those formal commitments, uh, the fact that we were able to reuse all the peatland on there means that we would have had uh, a minimal impact on, on the biodiversity of the site. And from that point of view, it's become very important for other projects to, to learn the principles from this one, uh, to, be, to enable them to try and hit those, those uh, broader targets. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own stuck in the mud is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP, and to Scottish and Southern Energy Networks Distribution, and to SSE Networks Transmission. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps or on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Tweet us at Engineer Matters or find our producers on LinkedIn. <laughs>